this time i am uh can't quarantine this pussy selena <laughs> except i guess you can <laughs> and my guest today is the uh magnificent magnanimous uh cutie with the booty <laughs> vanessa carlisle oh thank you how in the know is a podcast about sex work by sex workers for sex workers in case you didn't know that's what we're here for and uh exclusively that so every episode, we begin with a segment we call Historical Hose. This week's Historical Ho is uh, Zhao Fengsheng. And I'm really sorry for my ability to say pinyin things or to say any Chinese words. I'm trying, um, and I hope you know. So my sources for this week's Historical Ho is of your, as always, um, Shanghai Daily uh, produced a story called uh, Zhao Fengsheng, Feng Shen, a history maker by Zhu Ying. There's also an article in GB Times, uh, Shaping Chinese History, about uh, General Kai Yi. So yeah, so I'm going to include some links to these things if you have any interest in learning more about this super historical hub. So, uh, Zhao uh, Fengsheng, was born Zhu Zhaofeng near the end of the Qing dynasty in Hangzhou, so in like eight, nine, 1900. Um, and so this is like an especially important time in the history of modern day China because it marked the end of the dynastic era, the, all of the dynasties, and the beginning of the Republic of China. So it was a time of turmoil and uprisings. People wanted to, some people wanted to keep the status quo. Like with the end of the Qing dynasty, people were like, well, well who's going to be the next dynasty? And so warlords were duking it out. The Western world was like trying to throw in their stakes and colonize some shit for the sake of trade. Um, and uh, so it was pretty, it was the wild east to our American wild west. And I'm so full of dad jokes. So <laughs> bear with me, you guys. You should know this by now. Um, so... Feng Shen's father, and, and why I'm saying it this way is because Zhao uh, is her surname. Well, actually, originally Zhu, it was her surname. Um, last names first with Chinese names. So her, her name, um, Feng Shen. So anyway, Feng Shen's uh, father was a military officer, and her mother was one of his concubines. When her father died early in life, Feng Shen and her mother were forced out of their home by her father's legal wife, who was definitely a bully. Um, Feng Shen's mother died not long after as well, so or, uh, Feng Shen was left orphaned. Um, she was eventually adopted by a wet nurse named Cheng. And I love this shout out to wet nurses because just as a concept, women out there who are sharing titties full of milk of milk are uh, real champions among us. So shout out Zhang. Uh, but anyway, so when they f they fled uh, Hangzhou during the Wucheng uprising, which was a rebellion against the declining King, Qing dynasty, um, but they left and unfortunately the two fell into really desperate poverty. Um, so Zhang gave Feng Sheng away over to an artist named Hu, who um, who actually gave her the name Zhao Fengshen. Um, re remember that her name was previously Zhu 
Jia Feng. I'm trying, you guys. <laughs> it's it's a real tongue twister for my very like dull American tongue. Anyway, Feng Shen moved around for a while, but finally settled into a brothel named Yunji Ban in Bada Hutong. And I think Bada Hutong was like the best Hutong. That was like literally a tra- the translation of it. So it was one of the biggest red or red light districts in all of Beijing. And uh, Zhao Fengjian was incredibly talented. She could play instruments, sing operatic numbers, and write her own ling- or lyrics. And so she was like the talk of Bada Hutong. Um, and so Bada Hutong was a favorite area for a lot of notable Chinese generals. Among them, Kai Yi, who was a Chinese revolutionary leader. He eventually became an influential warlord in Yunnan and is best known for his role in challenging the imperial ambitions of warlord uh, Yuan Shikai during the anti-monarchy war. So Yuan Shikai planned to dissolve the republic and support the capitalists or with the support of capitalist superpowers in the West. So, of course, you know how the West be trying to install puppet dictators and shit like that. That was going to be Yuan. But Kai was like, no, no, no. Um... So Yuan was like to proclaim himself emperor and revive the feudalist system. But people were like, feudalism is like so 1900 and late. So uh, when Kai found out about Yuan's plans, he set out to create an uprising against Yuan. And I'm using the last name Yuan. I probably should have said Shikai. So in case you were following, it's Shikai. (laughs) But it's okay. I'm going to call him Yuan because it's different than our our real hero, well, our secondary hero, Kai, General E. Kai. So, bad guy Yuan, good guy Kai. Anyway, <laughs> meanwhile, Kai fell head over heels for Zhao Fengxian. He met her in Beijing during his civil service, uh, and he was like a frequent visitor to the brothel. <laughs> he heard her life story and was like, I need to save this hoe. but like thankfully this time instead of being unwelcomed and half-assed about it he actually did it in like a pretty cool way he like paid the brothel to release her and then the couple moved to Beijing where uh, Kai gave Feng Shen some light of a formal education so eventually Kai was put under house arrest for opposing Yuan um, but he made a point to visit Zhao Feng Shen every day uh, he bought her a house and he threw hella money into re- renovating the spot for the, I mean, obviously quite captivating uh, Feng Shen. Uh, so why Feng Shen is a hero in China is because she famously helped Kai flee from Beijing to Yunnan. And uh, her help allowed him to live long enough to take down uh, Yuan. Unfortunately, and quite Tragically, Kai died in 1916, not long after uh, facilitating the, the demise of Yuan. Zhao Fenshen was not allowed to attend his funeral because she did not bear Kai's legal name. And um, so she was very sad. But she later uh, married a brigade commander named Liang. And uh, I don't know what happened with that, if he died or if they divorced, but she later remarried. And later in life, she, uh, I think she lived with the daughter of like another, like her second husband also died. And so she lived with her stepdaughter and eventually got a job working at a public kindergarten. 
She died of dementia in 1954. And that's the adventurous life of Feng Xian. Hey, thanks. <laughs> okay, so we are back. Vanessa, it's us. It's us, we're here. We're here. <laughs> who knows, by the time I post this, who knows what the world will be like, what new developments will have happened. It's, I can't even fathom it, to be completely honest. But here we are. So I, I wanted to kind of like dive in to the world of sex work, because last time... I definitely needed to have like a quick like debrief of the world that we're having today. Um, quarantine, in case you have not read the news, in case you're like Jared Leto <laughs> and, and are just coming out of your sabbatical under a rock. <laughs> <laughs> take your earplugs out and you need to you need to take a look for a second. Yeah, yeah. just for a second. Um so you've done every kind of sex work and well, not every well, no, well, no, no, well, no, but I've done quite a few. You've done quite a few. You've, you've done so many. Um, and it's impressive and, and amazing. Um, but we're not going to talk about that immediately because I want to talk about your podcast mm. and you ran this podcast for, you said three years, mm-hmm. three years. Um, what was it called? What was the premise? And, and also, how did you end up on the radio? Yeah, thank you for asking. I love this story. So um, for people who mostly listen to podcasts and don't listen to the radio that much, uh, <laughs> there are a couple of stations in the U.S. that are part of what's known as the Pacifica Network. So they are fully independent radio stations. There's one in there's WBAI in New York. There's KPFK in Los Angeles. Um, and so KPFK was doing a new set of programming that they were calling safe Harbor, which was from midnight to, I think 3am they were doing new programming, new, uh, hosts, new shows. And the idea was that, um, those are the hours that are protected by the FCC, uh, for adult programming. I love it. So you can cuss on the radio a little bit during safe Harbor, right? Uh, um, the golden hours of right. radio. Yeah. No. I, I, as a sex worker, love this because it's often when I'm coming home, so I get to hear like a little bit of, of just abnormal radio. Right. Yeah. It's <laughs> And so, um, so I was approached by somebody who was part of this team uh, and they were, they wanted a guest on a show about sex. Mm-hmm. KPFK had never before and hasn't since had a show about <laughs> sex, like public radio, no show never about sex, like never since. just saying what, <laughs> um, and how? I, uh, how? how, and, um, totally wild. So I was like, okay, great. I would love to be a guest. Right. Uh-huh. Um, so I, I was approached in part because I do adult sex ed. I do, I teach queer studies. I do like, I was finishing at the time I was finishing my dissertation, um, on representations of sex workers in literature. Like I, you know, it's my field. I oh, love it. Oh my God. And, I the, wish. and the, do you, per- have a, <laughs> do you have a book you can plug? I do. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to plug that. Okay, great. Um, <laughs> and my p- friend who approached me was also like, you know, we want this to be political. We're not just trying to talk about 
you know, basic stuff, although people need basic sex ed, obviously. Um, But also like, I want your voice on here because I want there to be some sex workers rights as part of this conversation. And I was like, so they were like clear eyed knowing you were a sex worker. Yes. Oh, I love this. Yes. So I got invited on first as a guest Mm -hmm. and the host, whose name is Chris Ann Eastwood. um, We had a, we had a really like vibrant conversation Mm -hmm. on that first episode of sex, please. And immediately she was like, I'm spinning a lot of plates here and I want you to co-host this show. Mm -hmm. So the next week I was (laughs) co-hosting. And so it was every Wednesday night at midnight, Thursday morning, depending on how you think about your evenings. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, I always called it Wednesday night, but Mm -hmm. Um, and eventually it became, so eventually I brought on my friend, Danny Cruz, who is, um, an amazing, uh, he, he's done a lot of sex work as well. He's just, he's an activist. He's, you know, he's a, he's an incredible, uh, person and perspective. And, um, and so sex please was the name of that radio show and that radio. I'm I'm honestly (laughs) impressed that they could have it named that at the time. Yeah. That's bold. Yeah. We were on the air for about a year. Mm -hmm. So every week for about a year, there was this show and it was a live call-in show. Oh my God. And so I got to interact with people all over about their sexual questions, their sexual issues. We dealt with all kinds of things because it wasn't a show about sex work. It was a show about sex and sexuality with sex workers at the helm. Wow. And they, did they introduce you as a sex worker? In I show? always introduced myself that way. And oh and so did Danny. I called him my coho on the radio. Oh, oh, that's so cool. Um, and we, and wait, also were the callers exclusively in California or no. they were all over because some of them were listening on the internet. Oh. Most of them were, were in LA mm-hmm. listening to KPFK. Yeah. 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 Oh, okay. Um, that experience was amazing. I was dissertating. (laughs) I was insane. Uh, and it was a, it was a hot mic. We had to fill the time every week. Mm -hmm. The show was really fun. We would open it with sex news. So we would talk about what was going on in the news with sex Mm -hmm. and gender legislation research. You know, we would call the headlines. Yeah. Uh, we would take calls. We had guests. We, um, we would play a song in the middle of the show that we called a get it on song. And (laughs) sometimes they were sexy music. And sometimes it was just a song that had like a really good example of consent, Mm. or maybe it was a queer artist we wanted to bump or whatever. So we would play a song in the middle. It was a really, really fun show. Um, and then there was some upheaval at the station. There was a power grab. There was a bunch of stuff going on. Um, and we got cut very quickly and unceremoniously and no conversation, no explanation, just like literally a text message, like you're done. Mm -hmm. Um, and we regrouped and we started a podcast. Um, at that, by that time, Lauren Kylie was also part of the team uh, and Quay Tan, who um, had done quite a few shows with us. Mm-hmm. So the team eventually for On the Dresser, which of course is where you leave your money and your condoms and your other, and your other important stuff. Um, the team for On the Dresser was me, Danny Cruz and Lauren Kylie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also just love that like very brief explanation because I wanted to know, I was like, what is, where does this come from? But now 
you know, one sentence later, fully informed. Yeah. Like, where's the money? Um, <laughs> on the dresser became still a, a, a sort of sexuality focused, but a little more sex worker mm-hmm. and, and, and more sex work politics focused. Uh-huh. Um, you know, we did shows about, uh, various laws. We did shows about decrim. We did shows from the Desiree Alliance, the last Desiree Alliance conference to happen in 2016. Could you tell people what the Desiree Alliance conference is? Yeah. Um, so about every three years for a number of years, there was a big conference called the Desiree Alliance thrown by the Desiree Alliance. And the Desiree Alliance is a collection of sex working people who are trying to make connections with research and policy, um, to promote sex worker voices in research and policy. So the Desiree Alliance conference is like uh, sex workers getting together to share info with each other and a, and a safer way to interact with people who want to do research on sex work because the sex workers are running the conference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's so cool. Is it ongoing? It is not happening right now. Oh. Um, the last one was in 2016 or 2017. 2016 or 2017, I'm mm. blanking now, but it was in New Orleans. It was amazing. Uh, but, um, after Trump got elected, after SESTA FOSTA, the organizers were like, I don't think we are safe to do this. Mm -hmm. Um, we're not safe to throw a big conference like this. Um, so there hasn't been one since that last one, but we did a report back from that conference. We would go to like, you know, sexual health expo and report back. We Mm -hmm. had all of these cool guests who were like, you know, the lesser famous, <laughs> like the people who are not super famous, who are doing amazing work, mm-hmm. right? Like a woman who wrote this incredible book about puberty and periods that's uh, inclusive of non-binary people. What is the name of that book? Um, the Guide, period. Oh, wait, is it is it The Guide with the word period? Yes. Oh my God, that's so good. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, please, uh, pe- people, parents, check that out. Yeah, it's a good one. <laughs> okay well, well well we'll look it up okay so it was a the podcast ended up being kind of like it's by uh nama bloom oh nama bloom and hello flow h-e-l-l-o-f-l-o one word colon the guide comma period hello flow was is this incredible website with like very funny videos about getting your period <laughs> <laughs> um so it went all over the place, right? Like it was mm-hmm. a show about like sex and the body. We did um, adult education about STIs. We did adult education about masturbation. We did adult education about sexual orientation. We did a whole show on bisexuality and bi erasure. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we were constantly trying to do the ty- the types of conversations that you don't see elsewhere with sex workers leading them. Ugh, and as it should be. Yeah, yeah. It really felt, it, it really felt awesome. It was an, It was an incredible thing. Um, and it was hard because we had no money, we had no budget. Um, and ultimately both Danny and Lauren Kylie had to leave Los Angeles. So Mm -hmm. for a while we were trying to do it remotely from different time zones. It just, it got very, very hard for us to maintain. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I've, we hit a point where it was like, all right, uh, basic needs before podcasting. Like we had some stuff going on. We all, we needed to, we needed to, um, take care of. So you know, we haven't made a new show in, in quite a while. Um, but the, the, the podcast itself is still up, you know, you can still go on Apple play or, or, you know, Spotify or Stitcher or any of those and Google play, and you can still Mm -hmm. find it. And a lot of the information really still holds up. Like it's, it's, you know, it was, it was education about 
what's happening with sex workers' rights. It was education about how sex workers are taking care of themselves after SESTA-FOSTA. Mm-hmm. We put out a show about what SESTA-FOSTA was before it passed. Ugh, um, that's you know, incredible. Like we were, we were talking about the regulation of sex work and trafficking on um, reservations in the U.S., like what's going on in tribal courts. Um, we had some really incredible guests, really, really important information. Um, and, you know, I mean, I love Danny Cruz and Lauren Kylie are two of the people I love most in this world. So it was, mm-hmm. it was just, you know, it was, it was such a beautiful project and, uh, I learned a lot doing it because every time we made a show, I was learning stuff. Yeah. You know? So I, I'm, I'm still really proud of it. And I, and I think that it, it, I mean, doing sex please with a live, like a live call-in show was a dream come true mm-hmm. for me. It was like, that was a, 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 a sort of pinnacle moment yeah. for me as far as like, you know, you have creative projects that you, you, you love. And while you're doing them, you're like, how is this even my life? Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. It was just amazing. It was, it was a really special time. So, so I also, okay. So I have a second pivot because you were mentioning policy a little bit. Yes. Um, and we talked before this episode about a a specific piece of legislation that passed recently that you feel very passionately about, that you have some thoughts about. And I would love to talk to people about it because, you know, I think not everybody's plugged in. A lot of people are not plugged in. And maybe for a lot of people, this is a source of information. So this is, what is it? AB 2... SB 233. SB 233. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> for those of you who can't see which is everybody uh, Vanessa just opened her phone and is uh preparing I just yeah I I want to be when I'm talking about policy I feel the burden of truthiness <laughs> the thing about policy for me is I am not uh working in policy right now so I I want to start by being very clear about this that I keep an eye on what's going on with policy because I work with sex workers as my friends and my community and all of these things affect me. And because I want to be able to have something to say about it because I'm a writer and I make media and all that. Um, But ultimately, if you ask me like, what is my niche for organizing? Mm -hmm. I run a group called Hooker's Army Mm. that does peer support and self-defense training. What I do is a different thing than policy work. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in um, mutual aid, communities of care, and teaching sex workers how to defend themselves so that they don't get fucked up by people who want to hurt them. Yeah. That is like that is where my heart is at. Mm-hmm. I want to make media that's empowering to us to have the conversations we need to have so that less of us have to be closeted, so that more and more people can um, live their lives as they please. I'm interested in bodily autonomy. I'm interested in, um, you know, people thriving in ways that are immediate right now. And in my experience, policy work does not have that immediacy for most people, right? And so even though it's important work to do and people need to do it, um, and I'm not trying to disparage people who do policy work with their full hearts in it, mm-hmm. uh, I, need, I need to be clear that when I discuss policy, I'm coming from a certain cynical perspective. <laughs> I'm coming from some skepticism because for yeah, the most yeah. part, policy about sex work in the U.S. is either problematic because it doesn't do enough to protect us 
or it's problematic because it undermines full decrim. Mm -hmm. So any sex work policy that's going to happen is going to have problems because it's not full decrim. And even full decrim obviously does not make it safe to walk while trans does not make it safe to be like a black person anywhere. Like there's no way that full decrim is going to protect everybody. Yeah. Even full decrim. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that I just need that to, I just need that to be like a kind of global beginning to Mm -hmm. when I talk about policy, because I, it's not my area. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) That being said, (laughs) that being said, that being said, (laughs) SB 233 is a really interesting, really important piece of policy because it does two things. Um, and it does two, it does two big things that, um, is, And the two big things are reason for leftist organizations that are involved in sex workers' rights to pat themselves on the back. And so what we're going to start seeing because of SB 233 is the ACLU, the LGBT centers, uh, the SWAP chapters. We're going to be seeing the the nonprofits, even though SWAP is, you know, its own little like janky, adorable sex worker led nonprofit. Mm -hmm. We're going to be seeing, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say janky, but you know, I mean, it's... (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, it's like, it's, it's love. It's, it's love. love. It's like, it's not it's part, like, it's not really part of the nonprofit industrial complex. It's mm-hmm. a little bit too grassroots for that. Yeah. I don't consider swap part, yeah. part of the nonprofit no. industrial complex. Yeah, I, that's not, all I it's meant. It's not an NGO that right. way. <laughs> that's all I meant. Anyway, what we're going to start seeing is the nonprofits and the, and the groups that are trying to work with sex workers for decriminalization. We're going to see them being really, really excited about this policy saying it's a really big, beautiful thing, and we need to understand what it means. Mm -hmm. One thing that it does is it removes the possibility for police to use condoms as evidence against sex workers. Wait, you can do that? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That was my first thought with it. Like, what the fuck? So here's here's what happens. Some laws are written to correct practices that were de facto legal because there was no law against them. Does that make sense? Just <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> like run and like rip something. <laughs> so cops all over the country, all over the country, this is like a practice that's been normalized in a lot of places. If a cop stops you on suspicion and they search your bag and you're, you know, dressed wrong on the wrong street at the wrong time and they search your bag and they find three condoms, they have been able to use that as evidence for either whatever the municipal code is intent, intent to intent. Yeah. Intent to commit soliciting, um, you know, pandering. They can, they there's depending on where you are because of the way prostitution laws work. They're different in, in every municipality, state state by state, county by county. So they used to be able to just use the condoms against you. Mm-hmm. Well, years ago, Amnesty International came in and did a study on this and of course found that condoms are used as evidence disproportionately against trans women, particularly trans women of color. That was the finding. Mm-hmm. And it was like, mm, maybe this is an unfair practice that should not be happening. Mm-hmm. And, maybe. And so the mm-hmm. wheels began to turn to create policy that would prevent this practice from happening. We are also seeing policy, this is separate from SB 233, but we're also seeing policy now that's starting to come out to say, you can't have sex with a sex worker and then arrest her. 
why might we need why? that? Because that is how it is. They're like, oh, I got you. Like, first you suck my duck and now I'm going to arrest you. Right. So Ugh. we're starting to see some policies that are addressing what have been long-standing abuses by the police. Um, you know me, your listeners may not. <laughs> uh, I am foundationally and deeply anti-police and policing. I don't buy for a second that these policies are actually going to stop police abuses. Nope. It, 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 what it does is it just creates a legal precedent for someone to sue or to fight back. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it is important. The condoms thing is important because um, it is a way to really have a conversation about how this kind of policing happens mm -hmm. and how, who's getting arrested and how, and how wrong it is for condoms themselves to be a liability. Exactly. We do not want that in this we world. We don't want that. I no. mean, nobody, I mean, it, it's a public health crisis to consider that. Right. To be a criminal. Right. To be safe, to be healthy. Right. Are you fucking kidding me. So it's really, that is a really good and important part of SB 233 is to remove just, that possibility. It's just wild to me how low the bar is. Exactly. Wildly low. Right. Yeah. I mean, the fury, like even trying to have Condoms. a condom, I'm just like, I, I, I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. It makes me furious, right? Oh and God. so that is why I'm like, you know, yeah. So why don't we, why don't we have a meeting where we hit stuff? Like I have to- Let me just rip my hair out. Yeah, like, oh right. my fucking I'm, God. So um, the second part of SB 233 that's really interesting is that it um, grants a, it grants immunity to a sex worker who wants to go into a police station and report um, a crime. It's another like. <gasps> <laughs> so so why would we need that? Well, why <laughs> anyone anyone who's in the trades knows that if you go in and try to report that somebody stole your money or assaulted you, that you are very likely just to get arrested for prostitution. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So. Um, and anyone who's in even the legal areas of the trades, like even even strippers are, are having like to constantly contend with this, mm -hmm. where like even if you were doing something legal, you, you, you weren't even having penetrative sex for money with the person, yeah. but if they steal your money. You're, it's still like you're treated like a criminal. Right. Yeah. You're a legal worker with, exactly. no, with no legal rights. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So this part of the law says that if you walk into the station and you report a crime, especially, and, and it's, it, there's specifics about it. It's certain felonies, it's certain things, you know, there's, there's specifics that you need to know um, that I'm not going to go into here. But the idea is that if you were harmed, yeah. you can go in and if you were harmed during the course of a sex work transaction, or you are just a sex worker who is outside or whatever, that they aren't going to prosecute you for sex work while they are dealing with this other case. I cannot roll my eyes further back. So it sounds good to people who know nothing about the criminal justice system. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds good to people who trust the criminal justice system at all, who have any like modicum of, of faith. It's, it's a po Here's what I keep saying. It's a positive for people who already have an exit plan. If somebody's trying to get out of doing sex work and they have a way out and they want to report a crime and they want to get someone in trouble, it's a positive for them to have immunity. 
um, overall, I'm, a, I'm anti-police and I'm a prison abolitionist, so I'm actually not interested in anyone going into the system. Um, if they're, you know what I mean? Like I'm interested in community justice, so I'm not even, I don't, I don't want anyone even to go into the system at all. Well, yeah. I but, mean, I think that that's the greatest thing with sex, the biggest thing with sex workers generally is like, they're like, we don't want to be in the system generally. Right, right. So what does this do? Well, it, in my mind, first of all, you're a snitch now. So mm. you're in danger, right? It, yeah. it, it, the instant you leave the police station, it doesn't matter what you told them. If you voluntarily walked in there, you're fucked. Yeah. So there's already that. Mm-hmm. Second of all, now they know you're a hooker, even if they're not, exactly. even, let's say they knew before, you yeah. know, the, the possibility of you being surveilled in a different way or you, or the block where you walk being surveilled in a different way. Like particularly, this is particularly for outdoor workers, right? Yeah. We're, we're working so outdoors. You're all based sex workers for sure. You are already in like, you're already in the fishbowl mm-hmm. with the cops. Yeah. So I'm not sure this protects people in any lived way. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure it will, right? I, I want to be, I, I mean, the thing that I like about it is that it passed. <laughs> That's what I like about it. Because, because what that says to me is that there are, legislat- there are people in the legislature who are like, oh shit, we have a vulnerable population that is getting harmed by the cops and they need protection from the cops there is at least a little bit of understanding that sex workers are targeted by the police embedded in this legislation. That is, that is true. And that, and that's a thing that, you know, it's like, again, do I do policy work? No, I'm too angry, but I, (laughs) but I do see that there's something in there that is different. Uh However, is it going to actually protect anyone? I don't know. I don't know because it doesn't sound very safe to me to walk into a police station anyway. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's like so. how many people, I mean, it's, it's just truly the worst has to have happened for most sex workers to even fathom walking into a police station. Right. And if the worst has happened, use this law to protect yourself. If this is what you feel you must do, right? Mm-hmm. Like if this is what you feel you must do, like mm-hmm. California sex workers, you should know that this is a law. Yeah. So I want people to know about it so that they know what their options are. I think that's important and also to know that there are repercussions for people not abiding by these this new law. Right, yes, exactly. So if, you, if you're somebody who has the resources to fight a wrongful arrest, you should be doing that too, right? If you uh-huh. can, if you can yeah, and you want to. Um, I mean, we all know that like the trauma of, of going through all of that is so intense and so great that like asking someone to fight it I'd, I would never ask anyone to do no, that in the same no. way that I would never ask anyone to come out of the closet. It's like, you need to do what's best for you. You need exactly, to do what's best for you. Exactly. But I it, mean, it, it's exactly like with sexual assault cases too. It's like, I wouldn't, I mean, so much of me wants anything that looks like justice, you know, with sexual assault, but is going to law enforcement and following all the rules, like getting a rape kit and all of that following an assault, like going to do anything. I am so completely skeptical and faithless in the system and the way that people treat, you know, survivors of sexual assault and the way that the system is built around, you know, even testing those kits and the backlog of rape kits. It's like, 
And then following that, like the way that trials are, are, are handled and the way that the credibility and character of the victim is challenged over that of the perpetrator. It's, it's just like, I am so wildly pessimistic when dealing with our criminal justice system on all levels as a woman, as a person of color, as a sex worker, it is an utter failure to everything that I am essentially. So I just, I just do not, I, I wash my hands of it in a lot of ways, but if, 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 if somebody wants to make use of it, I hope that this can help somebody, you know, I hope that this in some way is able to help. That's all I can really say. Right. And that's the goal. The organizations who back this, the people who worked really hard for this, like, I don't ever want to insult people who did that work because at the same time, like I get it people who are trying to make policy that protects more people, like they are trying to do that. The fact that there were sex workers involved in creating this stuff, like that's a, that's a step forward too. Right. Mm -hmm. It's just that, um, we need more and we need it faster. And what we don't need is to be petitioning an organization like the police to stop hurting us when hurting us has been foundational to their practice. That doesn't make sense. Exactly. It's like asking you, you know, I mean, it's asking your abuser to stop abusing you in the moment that they're abusing you. Yeah. How many times has that worked for any of us? Like you don't get, you don't, you don't get that. You don't, you don't petition no. the, the power position to give up its power over you. That's not how that works. You have no. to, you, you really do have to either fight your way out you have to shake them or up. leave, you know, That's like it. there's not, there's not another way. And so when I think about, I mean, I don't want to use extreme language. Like there's not another way, but frankly, like I don't see another way for sex workers to get our needs met other than meeting them ourselves, because there's, there's so few people on the left who are willing to align with us. Mm-hmm. We're seeing more now, Uh right? But mainstream leftist organizing is such a shit show. I I mean- We're like a fucking hot potato. Like nobody wants to, nobody wants to touch us. Like nobody- Or if they do, they do it real poorly. Oh yeah. You know, they do it really poorly. And so I think that there's, there's, there's change possible here, mm-hmm. specifically in a moment like this, where people are having to contend with how much power the government really does have and what they could be doing to protect people and what they could be doing to try to help people be safe and what they, what they, what they do and don't do. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like, you know, the group, the group that I'm part of the hookers army, like we work on individual moments of self-defense, like someone's choking you, here's how to get out. Mm -hmm. But we also work on things like, do you have an arrest plan? Are there people who have your information? Like, what's your self-care after something yucky happens to you? What, you know, we do trauma support. We do like peer-to-peer just checking in about how things are going. We share safety information. Like all of these things, this is how sex workers organize to stay safe, Mm -hmm. not not walking into the police and hoping that the immunity sticks in my mind. Right. No, I mean, so in practice too. Yeah. So I just feel like I want, I want to talk about it. I want people to know it's out there. And also like, I just have to be myself. Like I have to be myself about it, which is yeah. I'm like, fuck the police. Yeah. <laughs> so sorry. Fuck, fuck, fuck 12. <laughs> yeah. hundred percent on board with that. I mean, I'm definitely also like a prison abolitionist and 
anti-police, ACAB, all day, every day. But, um, oh God, I mean, it's, I'm glad to hear that this kind of legislation is passing in lieu of, like, what's, you know, on the, you know, what people are looking at right now um, with the bill that I talked about, like, a couple of episodes ago. So, and I guess, you know, at some point I'm going to follow up and let you know what happened with that. We, um, so to talk about um, Soldiers of Poll again, or the organization that I'm part of, like we had a conference call with Congresswoman, Chris, or Assemblywoman Christina Garcia about the bill that she, and she's like co-authored. Um, and that, that person, uh, <laughs> I can't, okay. Continue. Oh, oh my God. I, I definitely want to know. Because uh, she, oh God, she started, so we like gave a really fantastic um, uh, presentation on all of the ways that this bill is fucked up. This is about 1539, AB 1539. Yeah, AB 1539. Um, the, the bill that would be like, oh, you know, all adult entertainers have to take this Licensing test and blah, 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 all of that bullshit. Live scan fingerprinting. Live scan fingerprinting. Business license. Mm -hmm. yeah. 21, changing the age from 18 21. to 21. It would fuck so many people. Exactly. And we were like, who the fuck made this? I mean, well, we were like, why would you write this like deeply condescending paternalistic bill that like has this fake guise of protecting us, but is really just a greater grab to have us in the system and take our taxes and you know, police our actions. And she was like, well, I didn't write the bill. Like I didn't put this language. It was actually some language that was grandfathered into it. And wow, it's just so hard to think about this right now. And it's time of crisis with, you know, coronavirus and everything and our offices, you know, shut down to partial capacity. And I just don't even she, she was like, you know, you definitely brought some important arguments to light that I would never have thought of. <gasps> of course you wouldn't, because you didn't talk to anyone. Because you didn't talk to anybody. <laughs> my God. It's oh like God. you crafted a piece of legislation and talked to nobody, nobody who this impacts. Like not, you didn't you know, like gather a group of people affected and stuff to, to have any consultation about the legitimacy of, le ugh, I can't even talk, it's fucking livid about this whole shit. So she's essentially like shirking responsibility for it, saying, oh, like, we'll talk. And we were like, well, are you going to come to our town hall um, about this? And she's like, oh, yes, I'll be there. So we'll see if she actually shows up to talk to us about this piece of bullshit legislation. Like, I will be amazed if she comes. Yeah. I will be amazed. Have you had experiences with her? No, not directly, mm. not directly. But because of the very few times that I have kind of dipped my toe into trying to do any kind of policy yeah. stuff, um, people who are anti-sex work, the way that Christina Garcia is, mm. like for her, we should not exist. Mm. The world would be better if we didn't do what we did. Mm -hmm. And um, part of the pr protection mm -hmm. is the idea that like no one can safely do it no one can be happy doing it mm -hmm. she's one of these people who has like that sort of foundational anti-stuff exactly and so uh, there was one failing to the call that i felt and that was that we didn't con and not that we have to or that the onus should be on us but that the argument was like there are a million and one other abuses going on that could do with proper legislation 
and enforcement of existing laws in a way that we are guaranteed our workers' rights. Mm-hmm. And th- and right now this bill is not necessary. Like what is much more necessary with allocation of those funds is enforcing what we already have. Yeah. But in along the way, I feel like we were just pointing out so many of the abuses of the system instead of talking about and and without kind of following it up with like, okay, yes, there are these abuses, but we also are all here voluntarily and we choose to be here because we like our jobs. We love our jobs. You know, we choose to do this life and we want this life. And because we're so invested in it, because we care so much and value it, you know, this is why we're here, you know, talking about these things. Right. But even for people who hate it, it should still be safe. Yeah, exactly. Like that's the thing. That's the thing that's really hard. Like being a happy hooker is one thing, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, and I'll, and all day, all day long, I'll talk about how sex work is the best job I ever had. But yeah. guess what? It's also like really fucked with me a lot, yeah, right? For sure. For sure. So, <laughs> but yeah. even if you're a person who is webcamming out of desperation, you should still be able to get your quick money because guess what? People need money fast when they're mm-hmm. in dire situations. And when we make it hard for them to get their money, they will do other things. So- there's there's a v- real failure to understand what poverty is whenever people try to pass legislation that makes it harder for sex workers to do what they do because they forget that most of us you know and I'm saying us although I you know I'm housed and I've been housed for my life and yeah. you know I want to be clear like I'm I'm not I'm not trying to co-opt anyone else's experience mm-hmm. I'm trying to speak from the stats which is that um most sex workers make overall on average minimum wage or less mm-hmm. it's not it's not like everybody's just bawling out no, no people do sex work because they need to survive a lot of sex work is survival sex work yeah. so if that, uh, side tangent like we've definitely talked um in this show about like how all work is really survival work but truly Truly, too, with sex work, like, yeah. you know, there's the so survival when, of it. When you place more barriers to a job that currently has very few barriers, what are the barriers? You need a private space and an internet connection. Even that is a lot. That's a lot. For, a lo- for most people, right? Yeah. That's a lot. There's- and so for somebody to have a private space and an internet connection and the capacity to start camming, like... I mean, there are people in my life right now who, if if this legislation were to suddenly be enacted, mm-hmm. they would be houseless in a month mm-hmm. because of they would not be able to do some of these things. And and it's like the cost of these permits. A lot of times, it just stacks up. It's like already an insurmountable amount of money, and like just to start up, and like this is like a lot of people's last ditch effort to like make rent. Right. Like I remember when I was like in poverty, and I was like my rent was like 400 a month and I was struggling and I started camming to augment like my minimum wage job that was like not fully paying my rent and not paying my food. And it was, it was like, I had nothing. I didn't have a proper internet connection. It was like choppy. I didn't have a good camera. I was just using like the internal camera on my laptop. There were no frills to this operation, but it was just to survive. It was just to eat just to stay housed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And like whenever you're adding the additional bur- burden of permits, of showing up to classes somehow, some type of way and affording those, and then also 
you know, navigating wherever you have to go to get live scan fingerprinted, which is just this additional like hurdle of like having to commute somewhere, probably for a lot of people using public transportation to get to all of these places. It's just like this insurmountable startup. Right. Like tax. Especially on a form of sex work that's actually one of the safest physically. Exactly. It's not safe emotionally, Ugh. right? Yeah, but it's but all, it's I mean, phys- but it's physically safer yeah. than a lot of other forms of sex work. Yeah. To put barriers in the way of people doing a safer form of sex work is so cruel. It's mm-hmm. cruel. It is, and it has no respect for the way that people are trying to protect themselves and take care of themselves now. You know, so yeah. I mean, I think why would I be shocked if Christina Garcia showed up at your town hall? Because for her to fully incorporate this kind of information, she would have to live with being so wrong. And honestly, I've never seen an anti-sex work person have the, have the depth or the capacity to change their perspective. They, they literally go into some kind of like egoic crisis. (laughs) Like it's like they, like they cannot process the information. They're just like, no, 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 no. Like they cannot, they Mm -hmm. cannot process it. And there's something like I see, I see like psychological barriers to people, to people understanding that they're hurting other people by doing this thing that they think is so right and so good. Yeah. They feel so righteous. They feel righteous. And they're high on that. Like, I'm going to say all kinds of weird shit now. I think it's, I think it's a drug to be anti-sex work. I think Mm -hmm. people get high on righteousness. I think their limbic system tells them that they are winning a war. Mm -hmm. And I think they feel so good about themselves that when they're confronted with the reality of of the harm that they're causing, they cannot incorporate it because it would mean they don't get their drug. That's how it feels to me. Mm -hmm. Like, and I've encountered a lot of, this is, I mean, this is just how I see it. Like it's how I see it is like a neuro, like a, a neurochemical response where I'm yeah, like, oh, they're, I mean, they, they're mad. They, they feel like they're saving people. I mean, they, they truly have that whole, the, the saviorial complex about it. Yeah. You know, like we are like this, you know, class of people that need to be guided in the right direction, which is to say away from all of the bad things that we're apparently doing. Right. And the children, you know, the children. we're not, we're, we're we're not we're allowed to have children. no, no contact not, with we're children. We're not allowed to be around children, but we're also all children right. somehow. <laughs> it's so real. <laughs> we're, we're simultaneously, you know, criminals and victims. I mean, it's yeah. all, it's all madness. Uh-huh. It's all madness. And it has like a, you know, it, 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 to what end, right? Like we have to ask like, to what end, what's the purpose overall for, for stuff like this? The, the story that you're going to hear from people in the position of, of writing this kind of legislation and advocating for it is that it is protectionist mm-hmm. and they're proud of it being protectionist. Yes. We're protecting the trafficked. We're also making sure that sex workers who have exceptionally high quote unquote depression rates and suicide rates have the access to whatever therapy they need, but only in this one single time, like one time session. Right. And there's also, you know, you can see it connected to forms of feminism from generations ago, right? So the, 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 the notion that women need to need to be protected, first of all, and the notion that women need to be protected from the dangerous uh, male, male sexual desire, sexual desire, you know, objectification. all of that. It's embedded in the Violence Against Women Act. It's, it's embedded in, in legislation that feminists and anti-violence advocates worked tirelessly to get this legislation passed mm-hmm. years ago. 
And the idea was we have to use the law to gain protection because we are not getting protected by the people in our lives. Mm -hmm. But there's still a, a, a disempowerment embedded in the notion that any one person needs protection from someone else. Some people do. There are people who do need protection, right? Yeah. Tiny kids, super old people, mm -hmm. uh, like people who are physically incapable of defending themselves, mm -hmm. right? We need to figure out ways to keep people safe who literally cannot necessarily defend themselves. Yeah. But let us never, ever think that those people can't defend themselves in some way or that they can't lend wisdom to the process. Mm -hmm. Even a tiny child, pick up a three-year-old who doesn't want to get picked up. What happens to you? Yeah. <laughs> they kick your shit. They, they, you, they, they arch scream. their back. They know what they to do. Exactly. They know what to do. Even people who we think of as needing protection have the means to protect themselves to a certain degree. Yeah. And we always have to respect that in people. We have to respect that in people. And this kind of legislation just reminds me that so much of feminism from my parents' generation was trying to grapple with disempowerment on such a grand scale that the, in, that the internalized narratives of needing protection were still winning, mm -hmm. even, in, even, even in some of the most badass feminism from the 70s. Mm -hmm. So there's something, you know, and, and of course it's mostly embedded in white feminism because they're the people who believe in the state. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're the people who are like, oh, well, the state will help me, yeah, you know? Exactly. Yeah. So there's sort of this like, to me, there's, there's like so many forces at work mm -hmm. that, that, that come to play when we get a thing like 1539. There's so much history. Mm -hmm. There's so many forces at work. And there's so much to be gained politically from people who say we're protecting a vulnerable population. That it's, yeah. it, it's, it's almost un, unreal. Like people can't understand outside of the sex working population, people have a very difficult time understanding when we say, don't protect us, leave us the fuck alone. Yeah. They don't understand that. That's very confusing to them. They don't. They totally don't understand that. I think it's just like people don't understand the motivations behind who is considered vulnerable, you know, like when we like pigeonhole this whole group and then there's no like larger differentiation between individual experiences. We just lump everybody in together and there's like the victims and the victimizers and they're faceless villains and they're, you know, like helpless infantilized people, victims. Like there's, there's no nuance to it and there's no way to like, properly provide safety if you don't understand who you're saving or what's going on like what who's the boogeyman here mm -hmm. you know some guy who like pops out of an alley and snatches you up yeah like, is or, this the trafficker or is it the reality that you are camming because you can't make a decent wage at yeah. the job you're trying to do exactly like yeah. I love doing sex work right I would do it anyway and I've been yeah. doing it anyway for sure but for people who don't want to do it, who want out, but who do it because they feel like they have to, because they can't actually maintain their lives working a full-time job, exactly. that is not the, like, that. that's not the situation I want to live in, and it's not the country I want to no, live in. No, and it's exactly that. It's like, how many people are working so many jobs, not because they want to, but because they have to? Like, I don't, I 
truly like there are so few strippers that I work with who just strip like they most people have other vanilla jobs like whether it's to have something on, on our resume so that you know if you want to move on you can have something there for the time or because you know like you need it because you need to like or stripping is to augment like you know what you're not getting mm-hmm. I mean and, and it's like across industries it's not just you know sex workers like everybody's got a second side hustle and a third side hustle because our fucking system is not paying people living wages yeah regardless of skill regardless of education how many sex workers do i know who are college educated so fucking many yeah Yeah. and it's not to say that there are not people who are not educated and you know like or you know in the the sense of informal who are informally educated yes yeah Yeah. formal education context like yeah i mean like we're totally a diverse group of people who come from all kinds of backgrounds but you know Oh God! It's, <laughs> so many people with degrees are working for way too little money, yeah. and and I would you know I ended up in sex work because I was like you know I had my degree I was not getting paid nearly enough money to eat, and um, you know I needed to make money mm-hmm. I needed to make money fast because <laughs> yeah. my needs were immediate, and that's the beauty of what you know for me what stripping offered me. And that is what is being completely dismantled in this, if this legislation passes, mm-hmm. is, you know, your ability to immediately take care of yourself and have resources and right. options. Right. And again, it's the question of like, why do people need money fast? Why do we need money fast? Why do we need money fast? If our basic needs were getting taken care of, we would not need money fast. No. You know what I mean? Like, why do we need money fast? Because we had a doctor's appointment? Mm. Yeah, because we... We can't afford health. I mean, the, that's we, the real question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's just, you know, it's incredible to see the amount of abundance we have of all of the things. Like, not in an individual sense that we individually own and have all of those things, but just America as a whole, like, we fucking got it all. And yet, somehow, we don't. Individuals don't. People don't. Yeah. Which is why the... the communities of mutual aid, like the, the way that the, that sex workers organize to network and take care of each other is so badass. Yeah. So I want to do a, a super crazy pivot. <laughs> but, All right. <laughs> <laughs> so going, going from the, the macro to also somewhat macro in a way, you started stripping at a really unique time period in, <laughs> in the United States. And it's kind of like, around this golden era of stripping mm, is it? I don't know was it before or would you or would you or sorry was it like after the era like the golden era because like there's, there's a golden a, era yes, I love this yes be, okay because uh, it was it the 90s the, well I would say probably like pre-2008 okay yeah 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 sure and even probably like I think the long the the more overwhelming are kind of like puritanical, no visible sex and sexuality and like, you know, like wink and tease type mentality towards sex in the United States is like, I think the stronger and more affluent the sex industry was, you mm-hmm. know, and I think now I th- people say there's decline and there's just like a number of reasons, income inequality, the, the shrinking middle class, um, general like lack of distribution of wealth and stuff and 
a million and other uh, one other reasons. Maybe people just feel like porn is too accessible. Yada yada. People are postulating. There's no clear answers, but there is still considered to be this time where strippers were easily making like you know two or three thousand dollars in a night. Mm. And now I never made that kind of money, just to be clear. (laughs) (laughs) However, 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 I knew of girls in Vegas who were making a thousand a night routinely in Vegas and they would do, um, you know, they would work for a week and then take two or three off because that, I mean, they would, to make a thousand a night, even in 2008, you, you had to be awake until 6 a.m. You had, you had to, to be, be hustling. You had to be really hustling still. I mean, that's honestly, you know, like, but. to me, still incredible to think of whenever I hang, whenever I'm with, like, strippers who work every day, like, work at, like, a normal, like, um, nine-to-five job type thing, like, every day, eight-hour shifts, I don't understand how their bodies hold up. My body barely holds up doing like a shift every other day, like a couple days a week. Like, I mean, one of the reasons why I started stripping again the second time was because I was working an office job mm-hmm. and I would get home at 6.30 or 7 and I would sit down at the table in my teeny tiny little studio and I would be so exhausted mm-hmm. that I would sit there for an hour, not moving, not knowing that an hour had passed. Mm. And then I would kind of come to and be like, what the fuck is my life? (laughs) I am not doing this. You know, like it was like, I was, I I was 22 Mm -hmm. and I was, I was working at the veterans administration hospital in West LA. And all day long, I was just sending emails to a friend of mine being like, I wish I was stripping. I hate this. I hate this. And, And one day he was just like, then strip then. Yeah. What the fuck? Like. It's so interesting when you're in it and it feels real to you. It's one thing when you leave and you try to do vanilla work or you try to get a straight job or whatever we want to call that. Mm -hmm. It feels far away. It feels hard. It feels precarious. Yeah. And I had a really hard time at that time accepting that what I actually wanted was to be dancing because I, again, yeah, I had just gotten my degree. What was I doing with my degree? You know? And, but when I was dancing, so that was like, that was like 2002. Mm Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I went back to the club and I, I quit my day job and I was, and I was at the club. Oh, oh, spectacularly. I quit my day job and went to Thailand for three weeks. Hell yeah. I was like, fuck you all. Like, (laughs) I'm going to go get massages. Like I was out, out. That was 2003. And I, and I, and then I danced only. Yeah. You know, um, and that I was working at a dive bar. I was working at the candy cat in the valley it has two locations one in uh one in like van nuys and one in chatsworth mm-hmm. um and it's totally a dive i mean it's adorable and wonderful and low ceilings and cor- <laughs> coarse light you know what i'm talking yeah, about yeah yeah uh, i felt very at home there <laughs> and yeah. um yeah so i worked there so that wasn't like a place where i was going to make that kind of money mm-hmm. And also, I, it's not a lap dance bar. Neither of them oh. were lap dance bars. There was a there's a little space in the back, so there would be like one person getting a dance at a time. Oh, so you had to wait your turn. So you had to wait your turn, and also I didn't really do them. I was kind of afraid of them for a while. Yeah. I stayed on stage. I made my money on stage and kind of standing around talking to people. 
Um, and at that time I still had some horophobia and sort of, you know, like I wasn't, uh, I, I want, I wanted to be a dancer and like, you know, like I had yeah. this, I had some other stuff going on. Yeah. Um, I also had super intense crushes on people I worked with. That was very <laughs> confusing. You know, I mean, I had all kinds of stuff going oh, on. Tell me about it. Like watch, watching titties and being like, what am I doing? What's happening? <laughs> this is the greatest job ever. What's going on with me? Yeah. Um, so, you know, but it was a good time to be dancing in the sense that like I had a regular, I had a very regular gig and I would routinely make pretty good money. Mm-hmm. Um, it was enough to support myself at the time. And it was enough, you know, at that time I supported a family member. I I could do some traveling. Like it was, it was some of the most steady money that I've made in my life, Uh you know? And then later when I was dancing 2009, 2009 to 2012, I worked at a place called plan B. Um, (laughs) I've heard, I know about plan B (laughs) (laughs) and I made good money there. Yeah. That, Cause that was a, like, uh, that was a higher end uh, situation. Higher end. Higher end. Highbrow. High, it was a, you know, <laughs> um, and it's a bikini bar. So it was a different situation, but I, that was where I really became a lap dancer. Like that yeah. was where I was like, oh, I am on you now. Like that's actually how I make the living. Yeah. Um, it was a different situation for me and a different time in my life and different, you know, different stuff. Um, but the very first place I ever worked, I just have to shout out now, was in 1999. I worked at Mary's Club in Portland, Oregon. It's the oldest titty bar in Portland, which has more strip clubs per capita than any other city in the U.S. And Mary's Club was a genuinely lovely place to work. Oh. Genuinely beautiful, lovely place to work. Absolutely adored working there. And it gave me the the actual sense of self and empowerment as a dancer that that carried me through to working any of the other places. I just, you know, I only worked there for a brief period of time and it was just, it was like, ah, maybe this is who I am. And you mentioned that you got into like burlesque yeah. kind of simultaneously or at some point? I started doing burlesque. So... I danced with a live show called the Toledo show. That's a jazz. Uh, they're still performing. It's like a jazz cabaret. Mm-hmm. It has a, like the main, the lead singer's name is Toledo. He's got a bunch of dancers that are part of the show. You can check it out online. And, um, they perform Sunday nights at Harvell's in Santa Monica. Mm-hmm. I started dancing with them right after graduating from college. When I came back to LA, what had happened was i You can stop me at any time. No. I graduated from college in 2001. I was home for what I thought was going to be like a month or two in the summer. Mm -hmm. Um, Where was home? In in LA. Uh And then 9-11 happened. Yeah. And I had had, I had, I had a job set to go be a performer at, at a club med resort. That was what I was going to do while I figured myself out. Mm-hmm. And they canceled all our contracts. And so I was sleeping on the floor in my mom's house, trying to figure out what to do with myself. And I went with some friends to see the Toledo show. And Toledo pulled me out onto the dance floor and like picked me up by my mouth and all of this wild, weird <laughs> stuff. And I'm like, you know, barely 22 like Uh, and I'm like this is it I'm whatever this is (laughs) (laughs) whatever this is I'm in (laughs) I will stay in LA and I will do this yeah and so I got a day job I was performing with the Toledo show and um 
It's a jazz cabaret. It's burlesque, but it's not cute in that way. It's mm. a darker, it's a darker feel oh, than, like than burlesque proper. Yeah. So I wasn't like a classically trained anything. I mean, I'd been dancing since I was a kid, but I'd never did ballet. I always did other stuff. Yeah. And I'd taken a bunch of belly dance and I'd done all this other mm-hmm. stuff, you know? Um, so dancing in high heels was hard for me. I had to learn how to do it. Uh, and I learned how to dance in high heels in the Toledo show. Mm. And because um, I had never really worn heels dancing at, at Mary's. I had worn like little three inch or four inches because I just didn't have it. Could not do it. Um, and so then I, there was a friend in the Toledo show who was also a dancer who I really adored. And she was stripping. And I just got jealous. I got super jealous of her life. <laughs> and so I quit the day job and, and started stripping. And so I was doing the Toledo show and stripping at the same time. Mm-hmm. And then when I moved to Boston, I got involved with a group that's still going. At the time, they were called the Babes in Boinkland. Um, <laughs> and it was a burlesque troupe. They're, they're now called the Lipstick Criminals. They're amazing. They do a mm-hmm. thing called the Slut Cracker, oh. which is the Nutcracker burlesqued. <laughs> it's... I love truly beautiful. I love like sexy parodies. Of oh, things. it's amazing! It's uh, amazing. Favorite genre. Um, so the, yeah, shout out to to uh, Vanessa White who runs that group. Um, I love her. So I was doing burlesque in Boston because um, the strip clubs were all located next door. There's an area of Boston where the strip clubs are. It's called the Combat Zone, and it's right next to where I was doing my master's degree. Oh, so I was teaching. I was taking master. I was taking classes, and I was like, I. I don't think I can strip at these clubs yeah. because it feel it felt really dangerous. Too close. Too close. Too close. Yeah. So I would go down. I would go out of town to teach pole dancing in Quincy, which is about forty five minutes away by train. Yeah. I worked for uh, an entertainment company. I danced at a couple hundred bar mitzvahs. Oh. Uh, you know, like did the YMCA, <laughs> and then I was doing burlesque. So wait, like party party starting <laughs> yes. dance floor. Oh, yes. oh my god, that's like such a bold job. Oh my god. How was the atmosphere like in the direction like of how did um, burlesque dancers view strippers? Yeah, I think so. At that time, there was still some prejudice in the community that burlesquing was an art and stripping wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, pole dancing was just starting to be a thing. Mm-hmm. This was like, you know, this was 2006 maybe 2007 way early stages so pole dancing like I don't think Britney had put out her pole dancing video yet or maybe she had just done it or you know mm. what I mean but there was still sort of this edginess to pole dancing that d- that does not exist now yeah, yeah. um so teaching pole dancing was still like uh like I taught pole dancing to like giggling groups of bachelorettes yeah. you know who were making fun of it and also loving it at the same time yeah that was intense. Um, so the, so the really intense. yeah. So the burlesquers were the burlesquers if there in was a my ring of hell for me. <laughs> it would be the bachelorette. <laughs> it would be handling bachelorettes who want to get sexy for like one night only. Oh my god! Uh, <laughs> so hard. It was so hard. The the burlesquers in my group, like the group that I was dancing with, was one of the most supportive, positive, sex positive, like beautiful. I never felt. Um, bad for anything that I had ever done or was going to do with them. Um, But we were, you know, we went to a couple of like competitions or larger or larger events. And I did feel that sense of like classism stratification in the burlesque world. And it's one of the reasons why I didn't really pursue it in LA when I moved back to LA, because I was like, 
horizontal it's ha- yeah it was hard it was hard and they also you know there was this was also a moment where the aesthetic was just starting to come back too so now people don't remember that there was a time where you couldn't buy a garter belt at Victoria's Secret mm. but there was a time where that wasn't in that wasn't what was in the sort yeah. of burlesque lingerie look totally that wasn't the thing and it it eventually, you know, yes, it yeah. became, obviously it's everywhere now. Yeah. Um, and it's easy to get a corset and it's easy to get, you know, but that wasn't the case. No, no. And so we were doing fun, weird, different stuff by, by being in those outfits and, and stripping had that feeling too. Um, nobody knew what pleasers were. They weren't all buying pleasers. They weren't all wearing that, you know, it was like there, there was still this, um, sense of it being a separate world mm-hmm. in a way that I think has really shifted, mm-hmm. especially since so many strippers use social media now yeah. to bring people into the clubs. None, we didn't have any of that. Mm-hmm. We didn't have any of that. And so it was a very separate world. Mm. And, but you felt like in your community, like it was pretty good. Yeah. I mean, I've, I, I think I, I've needed comrades yeah. <laughs> always. I mean, <laughs> so, so I try to me, find I, them. I mean, I, I know I like, I feel personally like very torn because on the one hand, like I, I am intermittently involved with UPA because UPA's account is like run by an, a couple of people among them, one of the SOP heads, um, AM and I love her and I know she is the most pro stripper person, but UPA as a whole is to me very problematic as an organization. I definitely feel like this whole thing around pole dancing and hashtags, so I'd say like hashtag not a stripper and all of the, yeah, just all of that that mentality. Someone needs to, someone needs to uh, clean it off now. (laughs) I'll do it. it. (laughs) Um, But it's, it's just like, it's, it's not, a comfortable place for me. And I feel like, you know, people who want to pole dance are not doing enough to be a proper allies. And I feel like if people are going to want to enjoy the fun parts of the culture, like you got to be here or like our ride or dies for like the real things that matter, you know? Absolutely. And, and so I'm just like, I'm extra tough on anybody who wants to take any piece of like, you know, stripper sex worker culture. I'm like, you don't get to join the party unless you're here for like the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. I feel that. And I think that there's, because of, I think of a lot of this as coming back always to criminalization, right? Where everybody has to define themselves in terms of the feared object, which is the prostitute. Yeah. And so for a lot of those years dancing, I wasn't seeing clients outside the club. You know, I, I say I've been a sex worker for, for 21 years. Cause that's true. Cause that's when I first started like showing my body on stage. Mm-hmm. But I didn't start like doing full service or having clients outside the club or sugar babying or whatever we want to call it for a long time. Mm-hmm. I wasn't doing that till, I don't know, 2009. Mm-hmm. And so there was all these years, almost a decade of being a person who was trying to navigate what was okay with me to do and what was okay for me to be around in a culture. And I always had a resistance to the way that dancers would talk about girls who saw people outside the club. It was so rude. I hated it. Oh my God. Yeah. Right. And yet I wasn't comfortable doing it myself. 
And I think that's an okay place to live. You can, yeah. you can not want to do all forms of sex work and yeah. still stand up for your full service friends. Right. And it, no one should even have to divulge what the fuck they're doing. So yeah. there was always this tension in the dressing room because mm -hmm. the girls who saw guys outside the club were a danger to the dancers who didn't in their minds, in their minds, in their minds. And so I think that those tensions, I definitely lived in those tensions. And then when I did start seeing people outside the club and found myself on the other side of those tensions, I was like, oh my God, this is terrible. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? So like, yeah. I, and I, I never, I, I don't know, like I, I, I had a person divulge to me that she had been seeing someone outside the club and I had this kind of like overwhelming sense of concern for her. Ugh. And she was like, don't need that. I'm good. Yeah. And I was like, ah, yes. Okay. Yes. yes. I don't like it when people do that to me. Yeah. So I'm not going to do that to you and I'm not going to do that to anyone else. But I had to learn those things kind of the hard way and over time because the, the amazing amount of information that's available now, like you can move through these things a lot faster. Yeah. I, I really only had the people I knew. Yeah, I mean it's it's incredible now that we have like this positive feedback loop. Like if you if you kind of tuck into the right communities, like there's so much more information. And truly, people, it's hard to recall. Like, but there just was not. And it wasn't that long ago. And it wasn't at all. It wasn't <laughs> like, at all. You know, I'm talking about this like I'm. You know. Yeah, like it's like a hundred years ago. I mean, but it, it's it's recent. I mean, sex work years are different. They are. They they're are, di they're yeah. different, you know, <laughs> and I, and I understand that to a certain extent, like I am an older, I'm an older worker now. That's true. Um, but it wasn't that long ago. Like it it's just, there are other industries that move quickly. Like they, I think people understand that things yeah, can like change in a year. Stuff like you that. Know? I mean, it's like, but, you know, all of this evolves alongside tech and tech moves super fucking fast. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we have to pause for a quick commercial break. Are you having being part of a historical event fatigue? It's not easy being part of the largest pandemic in recent history or one of the largest impending financial downturns. I wake up every day and don't have anything particularly pressing to do. It's a wonder I'm waking up every day at this point. Don't you wish you could just induce a coma and wake up in May? I guess the only problem with that would be the loss of muscle mass and figuring out who handles the IV and who cleans up after you whenever you dookie yourself. But that seems like much less of a fuss than having to be conscious for over the next 31 days. I mean, isn't this what robots are for? Why can't I just call Alexa and say, hey Alexa, clean up my fecal matter over the next 30 days and roll my body a couple of times daily so I don't develop bed sores? Is that so much to ask? I mean, didn't sci-fi predict that we would have flying cars and lifelike robots already? Come on, science, why are you slacking like this? Anyway, I don't have any solutions to this situation. I just thought I'd take you all on a little thought experiment. So on that note, stay home and try not to get the most vulnerable in our population sick. Rent strike, organize digitally, file for unemployment even if you're a gig worker, and eat the rich. Love y'all. Thank you so much for joining me. <laughs> I feel like we could go on talking forever. I feel like I could talk to you in particular for a long time. Thank you. <laughs> so um, where can we find you on social media? And oh my God, I didn't even tell me about your book really fast. Oh, like quick, like <laughs> elevator speech book. I want to 
sell it. Yeah, thank you. So a couple of things are happening. One of them is that I co-authored a zine with a couple of friends of mine. It's called Don't Hate My Heels, um, a confrontation with whorephobia in which the whores win. And it's, um, we're working on another volume now. The first volume, uh, you know, has been out for a little while, but it's still got a lot of useful stuff in it for people who are trying to educate their uh, allies and also um, feel empowered themselves to build communities. So Don't Hate My Heels is available on um, the website for a band called Copy Slut. You can go to Copy Slut's website and they have Don't Hate My Heels available in their copy shop. Um, you can also contact me on Instagram or Twitter and I will get you a copy. It's free for sex workers. It's $10 for everyone else. Yes. I know that's uncomfortable. If you don't want to come out, you don't have to come out. Um, it's tricky, but mostly I, I give it to people in person. So (laughs) I'm not asking anyone to write me a dangerous email. Um, but you can contact me on Twitter at V Carlisle V C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. My Instagram is at Vanessa Carlisle. Um, those are the quickest ways to find me. Totally. Oh, uh, and then the book. And the book. So I do have a novel out there. Um, it's it's ten years old and I and and it, you know, it shows a it shows a need for political development. So I don't actually mm-hmm. push that one very much. Mm-hmm. But I have a new book coming out. Um It's coming out in 2021 with Running Wild Press, and it's a novel, and the main character is a sex worker, and it's called Take Me With You. Um, And then I also have an essay in a book that's coming out soon this year from Feminist Press. The book is called How to Build a Hooker's Army. Um, and I wrote the essay, how to build a hooker's army. That's about this, this group that I'm, that I'm in, in LA and the philosophy behind, um, self-defense specifically training for sex workers. Awesome. Thank you so much for that plug. I'm Selena the Stripper. You can follow me on Instagram at Pretty Boy Girl. You can follow this podcast at Ho in the Know on Instagram. Um, you can support the project on Patreon at The Real Pretty Boy Girl and read some great stories. Thank you all for tuning in. Uh, have a great week. And um, you know what? I don't even know how to sign off today. <laughs> take care of your damn selves. Take care, take care of your damn selves. Thank exactly. you. Thank you for having me, Selena. This is great. Thank you. Bye-bye. More money. I want your money. I want more money. 